The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning. Uh, for, well, thank you. You responded. That's wonderful. <laughs> Makes my job a little easier to know you're listening. So, uh, My name is Nathan Metcalf. I am uh, the pastoral resident for youth ministry here, and it is my honor to open the Word of God with you today. Um, I have several friends who have told me that they are uh, praying for me during this uh, time that I'm preaching to you, and that encourages me. I have been praying for your hearts and for mine as well as we are going to be in this text. For those who have said they're going to make silly faces to me uh, in the uh, congregation, I appreciate it. Can't see the ones that are online. You know who you are. We are going to look at this passage from Luke chapter 2, and we are going to unpack it together. As I've studied this passage, there's been several things that have come to the surface that I think are going to be very interesting for us to uh, take a look at together. One of the interesting things that happened as I was studying this text, trying to bridge the gap between our Advent season and our coming new series that we do every year where we do a a sermon on the Word of God, a sermon on prayer, a sermon on sanctity of life, a sermon on ethnic harmony, was I wanted to bridge that gap. What ended up happening was a unique little mini-series kind of came into play. What we have is a mini-series almost filled with the idea of the Holy Spirit. This week we're going to be looking at, as you can see up on the screen, a Holy Spirit-filled living while we wait We are waiting, as Bruce said in the introduction, we are waiting between the first advent when Christ came as the Messiah and the next time that he will come as the conquering king. And we are waiting for that moment of Maranatha when he will return. And how do we live in the power of the Holy Spirit during that? And as that sermon was being worked on, the Holy Spirit was working in the, uh, the heart of Bruce, who will be preaching next week Um, And he will be preaching on the work of the Spirit and understanding and living the Word. Then Pastor Dave will do the next two, the work of the Spirit and our our prayer, and Spirit-empowered love for those made in the image of God. And what we have here is a four-week time frame where we're going to be able to really lean into how is the Holy Spirit, one of the members of the Trinity, interacting with us and us with him, and what does that look like in our day-to-day life? So I am excited to dig into this text, looking at Simeon and Anna, two people who faithfully waited and faithfully proclaimed who Jesus was, and they did that in the power of the Holy Spirit, and I hope to show that to you today. So in the power of the Holy Spirit and asking for his guidance, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we get to study your word, that you have given it to us, that you have brought the Holy Spirit to us as a helper and as a guide. Lord, I pray that the words that I speak here now would be from you, not from myself. If they are simply mine, they will fail, but your words, Lord, they are true, and they will last. So, Lord, I pray that as we unpack this scripture passage, that you would be the one who is praised and glorified and honored as we study it. In your son's name, amen. So my heart for us today is that we will see from this passage that we are a people who daily walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what we are called to be. That we'd be people who are filled with the Holy Spirit in our obedience, in our waiting, and in our proclaiming. That is my desire as I've been reading this passage for us today, that we will learn from that here. 
So let's get right into it and take a look at our very first point, Holy Spirit-led obedience. But in order for us to grasp what is going on in this passage, we need to get our bearings, as is the case with many of us. I don't know, some of the seminary students might have a bit of a bigger grasp on this. We're not experts in Jewish law. Uh, We don't know all the details of what is happening here. But there's a cultural, religious behavior that's happening in this passage in the first couple verses that I think is important for us to understand. So if we look at verses 22 and 24 again, we will see, and when the time had come for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. In a short snapshot, what is happening is this. The requirement of the law of Moses is being satisfied when Mary and Joseph are bringing the right sacrifice into the temple. But where does this come from? It comes from multiple passages, and we're going to take a look at the first one here. Exodus 13 is where it really comes from. And a summary of Exodus 13 is a nice understanding of what's happening here. This is the passage where they are being given instruction, the children of Israel being given instruction for the Passover. And in this, in verse 2, he says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb, um, among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. This is what he is referencing, Luke is referencing. He's going back and pointing out this law that was being practiced and fulfilled from the book of Exodus is where it first came out. Then what he, he does, a very unique thing, he goes on uh, later on as God reveals and, and shows Moses why this is the case. He tells them, when you go into the land of Canaan, you will do this. And as you do this, it will be a remembrance to you of all of my faithfulness, all of my provision, all of the ways that I have cared for you. So there's the facts. Started out as a law that they were supposed to follow. That's what Mary and Joseph were doing. They were obeying the law. But To understand the history of the sacrifice going on here, um, we need to look a little deeper. It's one thing to understand the history of something. It's another thing to, like, study it a little bit. So kids, kids in the room, or maybe not kids, everybody, you you ever hear your parents talk about maybe their first date? Or maybe they tell you about their wedding, and you're like, yeah, okay, you got married. But have you ever looked at their wedding album? and then seen pictures. Or maybe you've seen a, the actual wedding video. Who's ever seen the wedding video of your parents getting married? Okay, couple people, couple kids. So it, it's a unique thing. All of a sudden it's made more real to you. We understand it a little bit better. So that's what we're going to do here. We're going to take a little bit deeper look at what's going on here. And I really think there's three things going on in this first point. Two are connected to the Old Testament law, and the third It's not really so obvious, but you'll see it, I believe, when we unpack it. First, the law required that whenever the firstborn animal was to be born, it was to be sacrificed. The Lord makes it clear that among the animals, the firstborn shall be the Lord's. This was a setting apart as a reminder to the people of God of his Passover faithfulness to the children of Israel. Consider the constant reminder that this was supposed to be. You have a society that's built around farming, built around raising cattle and sheep, and every time the firstborn, firstborn male was born, it would be sacrificed to the Lord. 
the children of Israel were supposed to be following this law to constantly be in reminder of God's faithfulness in who he is and what he is up to and what he is about. Second thing going on here is the actual sacrifice itself. It's expressed in Luke 2.24, but it's really laid out for us in Leviticus 12, 6 through 8. Now, Leviticus is kind of known as the law book. It's the one that we go to to see what the law of Moses is about. And what we have spelled out for us in uh, Leviticus 12, verses 6 through 8, is what this sacrifice was. So the days we're purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he, and he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be cleaned from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. So Leviticus lays out for us the details surrounding the sacrifice that's needed for the sake of purification for the mother after childbirth. What's unique here is we see from our text in Luke, she brings in not a lamb. She brings in two turtle doves. She is of the one who cannot afford. We know this. This is Mary and Joseph were of, of humble origin. Um, they, they were not very wealthy, able to afford the lamb as well. So they brought in two birds for this sacrifice. But they are still being faithful to what God has called them to do, even in their humble estate and where they are at. Well, Leviticus lays this out for us and and helps us understand this, but I believe Luke is up to something. Luke, being the meticulous historian that he is, is making sure we understand something very specific here. We see this throughout this entire section. Multiple times he says they did everything according to the law. Luke is wanting us to see Mary and Joseph are faithfully adhering to the law of God. These were people who fully understood as best as they could what it meant to obey God. We don't have a lamb, but we can bring two birds. We can do what God has called us to do. He's given us his law. Let's be faithful and obedient to what he has given us. So what's really unique here is the third point. Mary and Joseph are coming to present Jesus to the Lord. If you look at the text, you see that they are coming beforehand. They came and they brought Jesus on the eighth day to be circumcised, passage before what we read. They're coming and they're bringing a sacrifice of two birds for the sake of Mary and the purification, but they're still bringing Jesus with. And what are they doing in this moment? What we have, I believe, is a consecration of Jesus unto the Lord for God's service. This is almost like when Samuel was brought to the temple and was given to the Lord's service. Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus in this way. They are being faithful to the Lord, faithfully presenting Jesus, and they are setting Jesus out on the right foot. They want his life to start rightly as a faithful follower of the plans of God. Mary and Joseph, they knew Jesus was special. Let's think about this. Jesus was foretold to be Emmanuel, God with us. He was foretold to be the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is not normal language we say about children when they are born. 
He was special. Mary and Joseph are faithfully bringing Jesus to the temple on this day to dedicate and consecrate Jesus unto the service of the Lord. Mary and Joseph get it. They understand who Jesus is as best as they could at this point in their life. They understand Jesus is unique. He's not just a child with a weird conception story. This is somebody different, somebody who must be given to the Lord for his service. They've understood from the beginning that Jesus was not for themselves, but he was for the people, for the work of God. He is the Son of God who came to be the Redeemer. Jesus is being presented as a consecrated dedication unto the Lord's service. Mary and Joseph are obedient to the word of God by faithfully fulfilling the law for themselves, but they also present Jesus to be obedient to the word of God by being faithful to the fulfilling of the law concerning Jesus for Jesus. As Jesus is faithful to the law of God, he grows in wisdom and stature, Luke tells us. And we should be rightly thankful he does because as he grows in wisdom and stature, we know what happens. Romans 8, 3 through 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This act of law fulfillment by Jesus, being the redeeming sacrifice, going all the way there, bringing us to a place where we are walking by the Spirit, not by our flesh. As Jesus lives a Spirit-empowered life under the sacrifice of himself for the glory of God and our salvation, it leads us to live Spirit-empowered sacrificial lives unto God as well. As Romans 12, 1 says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. When Jesus went to the cross, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may become children of God. He took the shame, bore the sin, and he made a way that the Holy Spirit would come to us. Do we get that, church? The Holy Spirit has come to us. He promised it, and he sent it, and it is ours to give us help, to be the comforter, to guide us. We are able to walk in accordance with what God would call us to because the Spirit has been sent. This is what is for us. We are able to be people who are obeying, not by our own merit, will, or power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit enables us to rightly obey the Lord. Mary and Joseph obeyed the Lord. They did it the best they could. The Spirit gave them guidance. We have the Spirit within us to guide us. And we can thank Jesus' obedience of going all the way to the cross to bring that for us. So Jesus was consecrated unto the Lord. As believers, so are we. But what does obeying the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit actually look like? As believers, we're called to a way of living. We have the commands of God in the Word, and the greatest summary is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We know this. Do we depend on the Holy Spirit to guide us as we live this in obedience? When our heart, soul, mind, and strength seem to falter and fail, and it seems like it's almost impossible to live that out. When we live selfishly, when we go to the websites we shouldn't and click on the wrong links, 
when we get angry or we rage at traffic? What about when we struggle to love our neighbors as ourselves? Or what if we struggle to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as ourselves? When we fail to consider others more highly than ourselves, if we are called to pray for our enemies, lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel, and be willing to be reviled for the sake of Jesus Christ, do we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit? Because we should. Do we hold those around us so dear that we would lay ourselves down for the sake of others around us, laying down our own desires so that others may see the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? And as we obey the word of God, as hard as it may be, we know that God is being glorified as we obey and do the hard things for the sake of his name and his glory. Because you know what? That is, as Romans 12 said, our spiritual act of worship. When the Holy Spirit is present, it's also leading us in many other areas. We, uh, we have different characteristics we like to attribute, and we call it the fruit of the Spirit. If you notice, the phrase is the fruit of the Spirit, singular, and yet it's plural. Many kids memorize a song to learn this one. Probably many adults know it as well. I'm not singing. I am not David Livingston. I will not sing up here for you. Sorry. <laughs> but we know it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit-filled waiting, when the Holy Spirit comes to us, it brings more than one characteristic. It's not like the Holy Spirit goes, well, you're going to be a patient person, but that's it. You're going to be a loving person, but that's it. He works in us in many different ways. And as the Spirit works in our lives unto obedience, let's look at another characteristic of the Spirit found in this passage. And I believe it's called, and I'm calling it the Spirit-filled patience. And this is found in Simeon in his waiting. Now, there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And, he had been, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. So who is Simeon? And what exactly is he waiting for? Well, first off, we need to answer the question, who is Simeon? Real simple answer. We don't know. We don't. We don't know much about him. We know what's listed in this passage. So what's listed in this passage? He was a man from Jerusalem. Awesome. We got that. He was righteous, devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit had made it clear to him in a vision that he would not taste the pains of death until he had seen the Christ. So let's unpack that a little bit more to help us understand. First off, I believe Luke is making it a point to let us know something really unique about Simeon. He's a basic man. There's nothing spectacular in the world's eyes of this man. It's my personal take on it, and here's why. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say he's a priest. He's not some religious leader or high official. Luke is a meticulous historian. He documents for us when Jesus has an encounter with certain religious leaders and, and officials, and he just calls Simeon just a man in Jerusalem. He probably has lived a common life of just faithfully following the Lord and is doing what the Holy Spirit has told him to do. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. He has been living devotedly unto the Lord a righteous, faithful life. Every time the Holy Spirit came, it guided him, directed him, and gave him the leading in how he should live. 
So what about his waiting? Here's a man who's been given a vision. I mean, a, a vision of great promise. We just looked at it. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Let's consider that for a moment. To, to help us understand this, I'm, I'm going to share a little story with you. So um, I'm from Chicago, and I've spent much, much of my life waiting for sports victories. <laughs> now, I, I, I know you might be thinking, you know, well, the Chicago Bulls, they had, they had like a run of a decade, and that was something to behold. You know, back in the 90s, when, that, when I was growing up, that was a beautiful thing to see. But I'm primarily a football and baseball fan. Now, the Bears, that's a lost cause. That's just, Vikings fans, you feel my pain. Um, Packers fans, you just stop. Just stop already. <laughs> but being a Cubs fan, that's interesting. So when the Cubs went to the World Series, I had to go. I flew down to Chicago, couldn't get into the game, too expensive for my blood. And we, I just had to be there. I had to be in Wrigleyville. And I start meeting all these people. People are just sharing stories amongst each other about, oh, I remember my grandpa telling me about when they won last. You, you realize it had been 108 years of waiting for the Cubs to win a World Series. <laughs> what everybody was saying as they're talking, they're like, I remember as a kid always thinking, there's always next year. There's always next year. It's like that was the phrase growing up. There's always next year, except something really awesome happened. On November 2nd, 2016, after 100 years of waiting, the Cubs actually won the World Series. It was amazing. I couldn't believe it. I had been waiting my entire life. I had my grandfather who had lived his whole life and died and had never seen the Cubs win the World Series, and it happened. I cried. I'm not even joking. I cried. I cheered. The memories were there. It was a beautiful thing. The city of Chicago all but shut down. I was here in Minnesota, and people were lighting off fireworks for a Chicago Cubs World Series victory. That was 108 years for something as trivial as a sporting event. In the grand scheme of things, in the bigness of who God is in his eternal working, a World Series win and a city shuts down. Consider this. The world had been waiting for millennia for Jesus. Thousands of years since it was first promised to Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. This is what had been done. And Simeon hears this, and in the faithfulness of the Lord, he just waits. I don't know how he did that. Bursting at the seams, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then the day came. The Holy Spirit stirred in him and brought him that day into the temple. So here's a man who loves the Lord, has the Holy Spirit upon him, and is faithfully waiting for the consolation of Israel. We don't know how long he had been waiting. We'll see later in his exuberant claim. Chances are it had been a long time waiting. Consider, if you will, for a moment. He had been promised. He would gaze upon the redeeming, serpent-crushing, sin-defeating, soul-saving, universe-creating, flesh-knitting light of the world, and he just faithfully waited. While he waited for the Lord, what did he do? He lived in the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that the Spirit moved, guided, directed, exhorted, and led him. He is righteously obeying 
The Spirit says, go to the temple. He goes. The Spirit gives a vision. He remembers it. The Spirit behaves righteously, or the Spirit says, behave righteously and devotedly, and he does. He just obeys. What I come to appreciate about Simeon is this. Here's a basic man who loves the Lord and is living in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's just being about his day, obeying, living righteously and devotedly unto the Lord. May we be people like that. May we be people as basic as we may think we are, that we know we can live that way. Living righteous, devoted lives unto the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are well, well aware as believers of what we are waiting for. Triumphant return of the King, culmination of the final redeeming acts, the defeat of Satan and death, and the righteous eternal living that is waiting for us in the presence of God. Here's a man who the Holy Spirit was upon. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What's interesting to me is that the word here used in Greek for consolation is from the same word paraclete, which is used sometimes for the Holy Spirit when speaking of its comforting effect as the comforter. So get this, the Holy Spirit was already present in his life. He was filled with the comforter, and yet he was still longing and waiting for more of the Holy Spirit comfort more of his presence, more of his consolation. But was that for himself? No, it was for Jerusalem. It was for Israel. This is how we wait. We are so desirous of what we have inside, the relationship with our Lord, the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, and the comfort that he brings, that as we delight and savor and are comforted and we wait for the Lord, we cannot help but cry out for the comforter to come to others. We wait for the triumphant return of the king, but as we wait... We pray that the comforter would come and be real to our neighbors. It's like a Christmas gift. Who got Christmas presents yesterday? Kids, you ever have that gift? Maybe even adults, you remember back to, I don't know, the Red Rider BB gun or something like that, that that you got and you're like, man, that gift was awesome. And you wanted the world to experience the greatness of that gift. And you're going around telling your parents and your grandparents, did you see what I get for Christmas? Did you see what I get for Christmas? It was so cool. Let me show you. Let me build this Lego set and show you. Let's pull, let's pull out the G.I. Joes and play with them. This is, this is what's going on here. Is God so dear to you that you can't help but desire for him to become the God of our neighbors, the God of our unsaved friends, our city, the nations, and the world? Simeon is a clear example of how we should wait. He had the Holy Spirit. He lived with the knowledge of the promise of God ever before him, and he hung his hat on the fact that God, who had never failed him yet, would fulfill every single one of his promises. But what about us? Do we hold to the known promises of God when we are waiting? If we look around this world, we know that there are some issues at hand, don't we? Sickness shooting, disease, homelessness, political distress, brothers and sisters in Christ being persecuted around the world. Personally, an answer to prayer, maybe we're waiting for a medical diagnosis, a wayward child who has run from God to return to the Lord, family member or neighbor to just come to this saving knowledge of who Jesus is as the supreme treasure of their heart. Do we hold to the promises of God during these hardships? Do we find comfort in the Holy Spirit in our waiting Do we read his word for the guidance we need? I don't say these things to placate us and make it seem like a simple answer. 
These are not simple Sunday school answers to a trivia question of what we should do, but we need the word of God. We need to pray. He sent these things for us. My prayer is that we would be people who have the committed relationship with Jesus, living in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't help but cling to the promises of God found in Scripture, living patient, righteous, Holy Spirit-filled lives that are bursting with a passion to proclaim Jesus, which leads us to the Holy Spirit proclaiming. So what do we do while we wait in the power of the Holy Spirit? What is our posture as people who are waiting or people who wait with the gospel on our lips? Do we wait as people who desire to see the world saved? Is our waiting for the Lord something that is self-contained or do we proclaim it when we have the opportunity? Simeon's a great example of this. Simeon knew he would see the Christ, but I don't think he knew until he saw him what he would say in his prayer. If you look in his prayer, he says, he took him up in his arms, blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people. Simeon, when faced with the full reality of Christ, recognizes that the purpose, goal, intent, and posture of people who have the Spirit is to declare that Jesus is Lord. Simeon worships the Lord, declaring the salvation that has come to the world. Do we wait like that? Are we spirit-filled proclaimers as we wait? Simeon goes way above and beyond declaring Jesus Christ as Messiah for the Jews. Notice what he says. He gazes upon the Savior of the world. He is overwhelmed with the full reality of who this little baby is. That his proclamatory prayers, he says it, is one of declaring Jesus as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. That's the rest of the world. This is like Haddon's message, very first Sunday of uh, Advent season, when he read for us Isaiah 49.6. I'm going to read that again for us. It's too little a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. When truly presented with Jesus, what do people do? Well, we know John leaps in the womb. Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. The wise men bow and worship. The angels sing his glory. The shepherds praise God and proclaim his coming. The demon-possessed are freed. The lame walk. The sick are healed. The dead are raised to life. The persecuted become the proclaimers. The church is born. The message spreads. And the nations come to know who Jesus is. And in this story, we see that Simeon, when faced with the full reality, goes from a partial understanding of the promises of God to understanding that Jesus is the savior of the world. This is how we wait. We wait for the great day of Maranatha. We wait for the answered prayers. We wait for the wayward child. We wait for the lost neighbors and friends. We wait, and as we wait, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Share the hope that is within you. We do not wait blindly unaware of what will happen. Sure, we may not know the outcomes of each of our individual prayers, But as we wait, we wait for with the eternal hope that Jesus is the light of revelation to the world. He is the ultimate answer. He is the Savior, God and King, that people need whether they realize it or not. So, as we've seen from this story, we see that we are to be Holy Spirit led in our obedience. Holy Spirit filled in our waiting. 
And we are supposed to be Holy Spirit guided in our proclaiming of who Jesus is. But there's a piece of this story that we still need to look at in our conclusion. And this is the life of Anna. And I think Anna is a sweet, sweet conclusion to this story. Here's a woman who's advanced in years. She's 84 years old. She's been widowed for after seven years of marriage. She had spent the remainder of her life devoted to the Lord and was regularly being used by God in her continuing ministering at the temple. What we have is a woman who spent much of her life boldly declaring the words and works of God despite the hardships of being a young widow. She loves her God. She is so connected to the heart of God that even though as far as we know from Scripture, she didn't receive any special revelation like Simeon had. When she sees Jesus and is presented and made aware of who he is, she declares almost like John leaping in the womb type of declaration. She begins to give thanks to God, connecting that this child was from God and that in fact this child, this baby, is the Redeemer. She is so attuned to the presence of God that without any special revelation, without any special insight, she sees this baby and instantly knows he's from God and is God. Anna and Simeon more than likely were very much aware of the prophecies of old, of what the Messiah would look like and where he would come from. They knew God because they knew his word. They knew the Holy Spirit's presence. They knew what was from God because they knew who God was. It's like this. You have that smell you can recognize? Maybe a, a house, your grandparents' house, or a person where you, can, you remember what they smell like. And I'm not talking the youth room or the youth after summer camp. We all know what that smells like. I, I can smell my childhood home sometimes or the perfume of my grandmother. And somebody will walk by and be like, Grandma, and you smell something and you recognize it. Sarah has a rubber keychain that she has in a Ziploc bag that was her grandmother's, and she can still smell faint aromas of her grandmother's perfume. She keeps it in a Ziploc bag sealed up. Do we know what, of, what is of God so much that when it's present, we are drawn to it instantly? Do we know what that smells like? Do we know God so deeply? How do we know what is of God? We know who God is intimately through his word, We'll look at that next week. We look at the word and what has been revealed to us in scripture that we can see what is, what is from God coming a mile away. How do we discern what is right and true of God? We have the Holy Spirit, not, not just upon us like Anna. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have the word of God and we walk in the Holy Spirit power knowing our God, Savior, and King. When we know him so intimately, we can spot truth from lie, wisdom from falsehood, love from hate, worldliness from righteous living. We stick so close to God that we desire to see and savor his aroma. My church family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, are we living with the Holy Spirit empowering us to be obedient, faithful children of God, waiting upon the Lord and while we patiently wait for the Maranatha return of our King, are we proclaiming Jesus as the redemption of humanity? This is what walking in the power of the Holy Spirit will produce. This is how we fill these empty seats as we have been challenged to do with our neighbors, 
We know our God so intimately that we begin to be the reflection of the light of the world. We begin to smell like Jesus. And as we go about our day, we become his work as the body of Christ throughout the world, speaking of the greatness of God and the redeeming hope we have in him. We speak of the light of revelation unto the world as we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's be people who are spirit-filled in our waiting I know it can be hard. I have people I've been praying for for decades that they may come to know Jesus. I have desires for people to be open to reconciling relationships, and I pray to that end. I desire the return of our King and that the great day that we comes, we will see him face to face. I want that just like you do. But I pray for myself and for all of us that as we wait, we are people who proclaim the gospel and proclaim that great day of who Jesus is as the Lord and Savior of the world. Let's pray. Lord, you are King. You are God. You are Redeemer. You are the Savior of the world. As we see you for who you are, as we read the word and we pray, and the Holy Spirit guides us, Lord, may we delight in that. You are God. You are king. You are savior of the world. Lord, help us in that, we pray. May the Holy Spirit's helping power guide us to be obedient. Guide us to be people who wait patiently and guide us to proclaim your name abundantly. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.